Hey. hey, you're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show, team. My name is Amelia, and today we have another absolutely amazing guest on the show. We have Dr. Doris Grosse. I screwed that up, didn't I? Oh, very good. <laughs> a research fellow and instrument scientist at the Australian National University who focuses on space debris. Welcome to the show, Dr. Doris. Thank you very much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Hopefully starting with an easy question. What is your job? So in my role as a research fellow, I research space debris, as you mentioned. In particular, I develop optical systems that help identify and characterize space debris. So for those of you who don't know what space debris is, space debris are all objects that are in low Earth, up like this is like about 200 kilometers to 2,000 kilometers, low Earth orbit, this is called, away from Earth, up to like 35,000 kilometers. This is where the geostationary orbit is. And they're all man-made objects. So this means all the satellites that we have put up there in space that are not functioning anymore, as well as rocket bodies down to astronaut P, for example. That's one of the curious things that can be up there. And, well, the curious thing is that obviously humans have put stuff in orbit at a time when there was a lot of space. And there is still a lot of space in space but it's getting more crowded. And over the years, we have sort of lost of track where things have sort of ended up and things have broken up and become smaller, for example, broken up into more pieces. And now we are getting into the trouble that we are actually running into trouble of actually managing the space environment. So we have to find out more uh, about its properties and more about the space degree, where it is, what it's doing, where it's going to be, so we can avoid collisions. This might be a silly question, but is all space debris moving in the same direction? Like in my head, it's all sort of like moving at the same speed in the same way. And it's all sort of like, I guess, cohesively this sort of spinning rubbish pile around the earth. Am I completely off track with that one? Not quite. So generally, space debris can have any direction it sort of wants to as long as it's in an orbit. This is, this is the physics behind it. So for things, in order for satellites to stay in orbit, they have to be put in orbit, which is, could be a circular orbit or an elliptical orbit, for example, around Earth. Because Earth is rotating itself, it is energetically easier to bring a piece of space debris in an orbit that is also revolving around Earth the same way just because you can kind of take already the the inertia from Earth's rotation to kind of go with the flow sort of thing. But you still have to actually bring space debris up to speed in low Earth orbit. So this is like the ISS, for example, the International Space Station is around uh, 400 and something, 50 to 500 kilometers high. And it's going at about seven, seven and a half kilometers a second speed. And that is the problem, that things are going at that speed. And worse, if two things are not going in the same direction and coming traveling actually opposite of each other, they actually meet at twice the speed. 
so at 14 kilometers a second. And if you now think of something, two really big pieces colliding together at that speed, they basically explode into thousands of little tiny pieces. And so it's absolutely a devastating that collision. And even if there's a little piece, um, there, there's like this big example of a paint flake, a flake of paint that actually hit a window in the International Space Station and made a bit of a crack in the window because that flake of paint is also going at seven kilometers a second, basically. So while there's, again, a lot of space in space and the likelihood of things hitting is still reasonably low, the problem is that when they do hit, the results can be quite catastrophic for the technology and the assets that are in space. Not even thinking about the astronauts, because there's not many of them there. <laughs> yeah, so statistically, the astronauts are relatively safe, but it's all these other things. And I'm sort of imagining, like, if you have these two giant things come together and do this big explosion, then you've got a bazillion new pieces that are all heading off in their own directions, ready to go and wallop into other things. And if you had enough stuff up there, you could end up with this like very intense cascade of just like badness. Yes, that's right. So, and the problem also is that if you have like two large pieces hitting each other, then they obviously break up into thousands of pieces and they build some form of, we call it debris cloud. And that cloud kind of stays in this orbit and starts polluting the entire orbit which means that this particular orbit at this particular height with a certain, we call it inclination, for example, that's sort of the angle, it is angled around the Earth of the polar or equatorial orbit, basically. And that orbit is basically then rendered useless. And if you want to put something out there that would even only basically go through that orbit in one intersection, you'd still have to manage that because the likelihood of something hitting with that while passing through that debris orbit is, of course, then higher as well. Okay, so I've got a lot of stuff in orbit, which I guess coming from a culture where I've been told to pick up after myself is a bit sort of embarrassing. Like you don't leave a chip packet lying around. Maybe you also shouldn't leave like frozen pea lying in space either. How do you clean that up or do we not? Because, you, you know, we've obviously got like lots of microplastics in the ocean and plastic and we sort of talk a lot about cleaning that up in the hope of improving that environment. This is another kind of environment. Are we going to scoop it out somehow? Oh, that would be lovely. Well, the bad thing is that there is actually no solution for uh, no size, like no one size fits all sort of thing because this environment, like, Things travel at different speeds, there's different materials, different sizes, different hazardous materials because you also have nuclear waste in space, you have fuel, you have various forms of metal. And of course, things have become radioactive through radiation in space. And like it's it's also the like it's it's very, very, very difficult to kind of describe one piece of space debris, like and find a solution to remove a lot of things. And when humans started in the late 50s to put up things in space, like the first satellite Sputnik, it actually only revolved around Earth a couple of orbits and then came down again because they couldn't bring it up to enough speed that it would go high enough to stay in an orbit. And the reason for this is if you don't bring, like, for example, at 200 kilometers or 300 kilometers, there's still a bit of atmosphere because the atmosphere just doesn't stop. It just goes, becomes less and less. 
So there is still atmosphere which causes friction and then slows the piece down and eventually this piece will fall down to earth, um, usually blowing up in the atmosphere or burning up in the atmosphere. So in the, in the very early days, people didn't have to think about that because the problem would solve itself because the satellites wouldn't stay up in space for long enough. When then the humans had more capability, this is like 20 years onwards, in the 70s, there was actually one smart man who realized that this is going to happen, meaning space is going to fill up and we're eventually going to have a problem with, with debris and rubbish, basically. And he coined the term Kessler syndrome because his name is Kessler. And he basically argued that if we put up more and more things in space, given the high velocity, once collisions start to happen, then we get more and more debris. And that creates like a cascading effect until like there's like an exponential growth of debris that we can't manage anymore. We're not at that point yet, luckily, but there could still be events that basically research has already shown there have been fragmentation events, collision events that then caused again another collision event, for example. So this kind of has happened already, not in an exponential kind of growth way that it's unstoppable. And so now people, it's a bit like, I don't want to get too political, but it's a bit like climate change, you know, like 30 years ago, people started talking about it and now governments are actioning things. And this is sort of a very similar thing, like the research environment has talked about this for a long time. And now governments and space agencies are putting it sort of higher on their agenda and talking about it. And that's why now space agencies, commercial companies, research institutions are starting to collaborate and develop different ideas on how to remove things from space, remove debris. There's also some ideas how to build like a dedicated recycling space station in space and recycle the assets that are in space. It's just because the satellite doesn't work doesn't mean that all its components don't work anymore, obviously. And then there is also, of course, the effort that we're building satellites a little bit smarter with the right materials, with the right things like we call it a deorbit sail. So it's actually like a, a big drag sail that you employ at the end of lifetime, which increases the area of the satellite so it comes down quicker. Or you just use the last fuel to bring your satellite a bit closer to Earth. So it then deorbits. There is like a guideline. It's called a 25-year rule. So the satellite then deorbits within 25 years, which is actually a short lifetime. Like there's satellites out there that are at... 1,500, 2,000 kilometers, they will stay in space for hundreds of years. And that was going to be my next question is like everything that we put up in orbit, will it eventually, will that orbit decay and everything will eventually over time come back to Earth? Or are some of them legit stuck there forever, kind of like frozen in their orbit until they get knocked by something else? So, I guess forever is like a hard term in astronomy and in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's very fair. The sun will explode, etc. Yeah. Hmm. So when, when a, a satellite is out there, let's say even in, in geostationary orbit at 35,000 kilometers away, that's, by the way, a special orbit because the speed of the satellite actually has the same speed as Earth revolves. So the satellite stays over the same point over Earth. So it can like, you know, check weather patterns and stuff like that. And, and you can get the, the cool development of a storm and stuff like that from them. Or communication satellites are also out there as well, like the big TV broadcasters. So anyway, 
everything that's in there is bound to physics laws and physics. And the main big issue is gravity. So satellites will mainly be influenced in their orbit by Earth's gravity and the sun's gravity because that's the biggest mass thing in our vicinity and also like our neighboring planets as well. So there will always be a bit of like a bit of a tug of war to kind of influence the orbit. But eventually this object would still be closest to Earth. So that is the biggest pull that the satellites experience basically. But there's also like things like solar radiation, for example, that can push satellites further out and accelerate them a little bit. But the energy that a satellite would need to, for example, leave the solar system and get away from Earth or escape Earth's gravity is a lot. And there's only like, like you know, the handful of satellites that have sort of gone away from Earth's gravity and flown past forever horizon and like the big, the big space missions. And I think only one of them, I believe, but I don't want to put my foot down, has actually now come to the edge of the solar system. So it'll come down, but yeah, in forever terms. <laughs> this is a very slow process. Like if we're talking 25 years is a good sort of end of life, it's actually amazing when you consider how short the rest of the tech in our lives survives for. So, But the problem with the 25-year-old is that now we've, um, maybe you guys have heard of mega constellations. So like companies like SpaceX or Boeing or other big telecom companies, they want to put like thousands of little cubesats. They are like 10 times 10 times 10 centimeters, or sometimes there's two or three units, so like 10 times 30 times 10 centimeters. It would be a three cubesat. And they want to put thousands of them up in like particular orbits. And that means that, you know, we're going to, like increase the amount of satellites by a 10, 20, 50 fold to what we've actually put up there over the next 10 years. And that's going to give us obviously a bigger issue so that now people are saying when the 25 year old was invented like 10 years ago, we didn't realize that if we put up mega constellations, 25 years would not be enough to deorbit a satellite. That's a lot of stuff up there. That's a lot. And I imagine that's where things start to get a little bit spicy politically and very topical at the moment. That's right, yeah. And it's very hard for international like countries to commit to things. And it's not that the countries don't want to commit. It's more the whole liability part is quite difficult because, and this is where my job comes back in again, even if you put all the past space activity aside and say, like, whatever's up there is up there, you guys didn't think ahead. That's fine. No one had the foresight of, of this is going to happen. But from now on, you're liable to what you put up there. And there is actually already treaties and guidelines out there that people are liable for the satellite, but there is no necessarily set fines or no consequences. And that's mainly also due to the fact that we can't actually for then sure say, oh, your satellite hit my satellite or your satellite stopped working because... Why? Like my company could say, oh, my satellite stopped working because it got hit by another piece of debris. And so it wasn't my fault that my satellite crashed into your satellite because it only stopped working because it got hit by some random other debris thing that was there. But who knows? But because who, no one really sees, it's really, really hard to see a collision. Only if you have been tracking two big objects that you can see, 
and then actually watch them collide is technically possible. But even then you have to be able to see them in that moment when they're hitting each other, which is hard enough because you, from, from telescopes from, from Earth, you, can't only, you can only see like a, an excerpt of the orbit at the time. And if they just sort of happen to collide over a daytime area, let's put it that way, you can't necessarily see that, for example. Like it's way too complicated to like this whole legal aspect about liability. There's no point in even sort of at the moment at least making rules about it because we're not able to actually pinpoint down whose fault it was. And I think also that's the wrong approach because we don't want to blame people. I think people should be leading with good examples. Like there should be incentives to help companies make the right material choices, the right technology choices, invest a little bit more in the orbiting technologies so that they make sure that they, you know, deorbit their satellites again when they are done with their mission. It's just so complicated. And the more you think about it, and obviously all this is happening in three dimensions as well. It's not just like two dimensions. That is messy and expensive. And I can just see all the lawyers like lining up and rubbing their hands and being like, we're going to win out of this one. The lawyers will get rich. <laughs> so, so I'm trying to basically help advance technology so we can see more and identify things better and understand what actually has happened in space, basically. Did you want to talk about a little bit about what you're working on at the moment? Oh, yeah, sure. So uh, my main work with Space Debris is developing adaptive optics systems. So that technology has been developed both by the Department of Defense because it's a very powerful optical technique, but also by astronomy. And so humans in general are quite grateful for the atmosphere that surrounds Earth <laughs> because we can breathe. When we remember to be. Right. <laughs> However, when you're an astronomer, the atmosphere is actually pretty bad because the light that comes from like far away, random universes from somewhere, is actually what we call a flat, has a flat wavefront because sort of from very far away, it's basically flat when it arrives at Earth. And then the last 90 kilometers after those billions of light years, it gets all distorted and messed up at the last end of the journey. And when we now want to basically take an image or video of something in space, we can't get the resolution sort of high enough to see a lot of stuff. And by parts, you can increase that by increasing your aperture, meaning you build bigger and bigger telescopes, but you will always be bound by the distortion of that the atmosphere causes. And adaptive optics is a technique where a quite smart wavefront sensor measures this distortion and it sends its measurements to a real-time computer that in turn sends commands to a deformable mirror. It's called a device and it's literally a mirror that can kind of push and pull on actuators and change its shape and therefore it compensates for those distortions in those wavefronts and making the wavefronts flat again. And once you apply all this, you then have basically a flat wavefront that you now can image again your image at a very high resolution. And that means that you can see fainter things at a higher resolution, so with more detail. And astronomers have applied this, you know, to see nebulas, galaxies, all these objects in space. And we're now applying this to space debris. So 
conventional imaging telescopes for space to be, they just see a dot, you know, are there something? And we can now see the shape so we can see, oh, does this satellite have like one or two solar panels from left, from right? We can see it now turning. We can see, because we can resolve the reflectivity as well, we can see maybe there's a darker part and a brighter part. So this tells us a little bit about how reflective the surfaces is of the satellite and things like that. So we can now tell more aspects of that space debris part. part. Because I think in like in my head, and I'm assuming in most of the listeners' heads, I don't know, for some reason I thought you'd be able to see quite clearly and see, I don't know, the logo, for example, that was on the um <laughs> on the satellite. Be like, oh that was Fred's, you know? Obviously it's sounding actually a lot like doing underwater research where you're dealing with quite unclear images, you everything's working against you, everything's in three dimensions, everything's just difficult. Yeah. Just that everything moves even faster and is further away. <laughs> that adaptive optic stuff, that's amazing. That's really nifty. Yeah, yeah. I have to admit I didn't come up with it. <laughs> I just, you know, slithered into this job by chance. So, <laughs> I forgot to ask a very important question, though. Do you want to go to space? Yes, probably more so in one of those commercial space flights once they are established like i'm not i don't feel the need of staying in space for a long period of time like an astronaut just because i think i'm probably too lazy for that i can't succeed in doing like an hour of sport every day on earth so (laughs) having to do like three hours a day or four hours in space that's uh i don't know (laughs) I, i think astronauts like i admire astronauts they are incredible people for being so driven but yeah, it's, it's so much hard work and I would love to see Earth from space and I would love to also look the other way and see the stars without the atmosphere because then you actually can see all these incredible amount of dots, like sharp, really sharp dots. Yeah, I, I'd love to see that, but for that to see, you know, a 200-kilometer high flight sort of is enough to experience weightlessness and and see Earth from down the sky or the, the universe sort of properly. But that could be an experience for like, I don't know, half an hour or an hour or so. It doesn't have to be a month or two. Or a year. So obviously taking into account that you're not going into space every day to measure the debris, what does an average day at work look like for you? So there is like, I could think of sort of three main areas. There's the boring stuff the slightly more exciting stuff and the really exciting stuff and the boring stuff because I'm a researcher and I mean it's it's of course not super boring but it's stuff that you have to do you have to write grant proposals to get funding for your projects and once the projects are there you have to obviously care for your projects so you have to do budgeting resourcing scheduling making sure that everything's on track that everything works that you can get your components and you have to write project reports so that's all the stuff that you basically can do anywhere and you don't need a fancy lab or anything for that. But then eventually when you like have done over the have gone over the planning phase, you get to the more exciting stuff and you actually get to design the instrument that you're going to build. And so I do that on paper or in Excel or in optical design software. 
I might also run some simulations to sort of pre-verify to make sure that what I thought was going to happen would happen, sort of, you know, quantitatively or qualitatively trying to verify it in a simulation first. And then the real exciting stuff happens, and that's when actually the components arrive and I build them all together in the lab and test them in the lab. And then, of course, in the final phase of the project, I move the system to an actual telescope. This is a ground-based telescope and install the optical system on the telescope and then operate it and obviously properly see high-resolved satellites, for example. And that's what I just explained. That's like a minimum of three years for like one system. The planning phase and the design phase that takes up a lot of time. And some of these technologies, like the cameras, for example, they say sometimes have a high lead time. So you sometimes have to wait for three months or six months until you actually get the components before you can put them together as well. And of course, the design process itself, we go through several stages of the design to make sure, and you of course get input, but it's not only me that designs the system. I work with a full team and you do a preliminary design review and then a Oh, first of all, actually conceptual, then a preliminary, and then a critical design review through which phases you go through and kind of say, okay, this is a good concept, but we haven't figured out these five things here and there and there. And then the next stage, you've figured out more. And in the final stage, you should be fairly confident that things are going to work the way you thought they would. How many of these have you done? So I kind of joined this big spacery project sort of halfway through. So the design phase was already like finished and we were in the, started sort of in the building phase and testing phase. And I've done some other things, some little, little projects after that. And we've now also gone into the sort of lab testing phase, literally like, but because this is like, probably been in the installing and testing phase at the telescope already if pandemic hadn't happened. So that was obviously, it's something with lockdowns and stuff that is not normal, obviously in our job, that over the last couple of months, I'm um, based in, in Canberra and we were in lockdown as well. So we couldn't actually go into the lab. And when the pandemic happened last year, we also went sort of mandated home office for like three, four months as well. And had a baby. That also prevented me from, well, I actually already had two babies in this career. So, so there were always some stints where I couldn't go into the lab either. <laughs> congratulations. And congratulations on surviving the pandemic, obviously. Okay, so you, it's not like you have a room in your house that's full of different instruments that have been built, designed and built over the years and you sort of like collect them. Like what happens to them once they've been deployed? Do they stay there forever? Do they go somewhere else? So some of the components, particularly with optics, like sometimes we build custom lenses to the specifics of that instrument. These requirements are kind of driven of what the instrument is meant to be doing in a certain very specific application. And those sort of custom things, they are usually sort of shelved afterwards just in case you happen to need sort of the exact same lens again, but that's very, very unlikely. But there are other things like, for example, the CMOS or CCD cameras, electronic cameras, then can be reused in a new setup or they sort of live in our optics labs 
And then they can be used for like quick tests as well. So if you want to verify something and you need a camera to quickly check whether optics behave the way you want them to behave, you can quickly sort of whip up and you've got the components there to, to just quickly test your sort of initial kind of setup. That's cool. That's very cool. How did you get into this job? Because I do not think this would ever be listed in a high school as like a career option. I mean, it should obviously be, but how did you make your way from high school to where you are now? So my way is actually quite a funny way. I did do a degree of electrical engineering information science in Germany because I'm uh, born and also grew up in Germany. And I also did my PhD in Germany as well, uh, majoring in optics and photonics. Photonics, by the way, is the science of light, basically. So I learned a lot of stuff about lasers and LEDs and, you know, how light behaves in different scenarios. And for that, of course, you need optics. You need to know how lenses work and things like that. So I did that in my PhD. And then because I had done a study abroad semester in Australia, I met my now husband then. This was before I finished my PhD and we stayed in touch. And I decided to migrate to Australia. And as I was a little bit unorganized, I did not really care much about my career at the time. So I basically just was like, I finished my PhD, I'm coming. And I just migrated on a working holiday visa. And I also decided to use that visa wisely and actually became a skiing instructor for one season. I was pretty cool. And then I decided to just sort of make my own living by becoming a tutor for high school students and university students in maths, physics, German came in handy. And however, then I figured out that wasn't really what I wanted to do either. I think at the time I was a bit sick of university because I had been at university quite a while with doing a PhD as well. But after this was about a two-year break, after that two-year break, I thought like, oh yeah, why not? And university was actually pretty good. So I was basically based in Canberra. That was sort of the given. And um, I looked at universities and looked for optics, general sort of, you know, research fellow positions in optics and photonics. And I found this adaptive optics project with Space Debris. And I applied for that and got the job. So this kind of shows how, you know, with an engineering degree and some sort of knowledge background, I was able, obviously, to show that I had the capability to just learn something new with the right background that I had without knowing anything really about astronomy or necessarily space or adaptive optics, actually, for that matter. <laughs> but, yeah, I obviously understood quickly and learned all about it. Not all about it. I'm still learning. <laughs> well, that's kind of the point of research is that, like, humanity is still learning. So, yeah. That's awesome. And well, the thing is, you would have had like the baseline foundational knowledge. It's just applied in a different, in a very sort of niche field. That's a lovely journey. You don't miss the ski instructing? Oh, uh, yeah, I, I do. Not, not actually not the instructing necessarily, more the skiing <laughs> part of it. <laughs> but uh, I get the instructing kind of still because I was a, a junior ski instructor. Uh, with little experience, I obviously got put in a, a ski kindergarten. So now I can do all the fun games over and over again just without the skiing with my children. 
And yeah, the skiing just doesn't happen at the moment, but we'll be working on that in the years to come. (laughs) You'll get there. Were there any particular aha moments or supportive teachers or things that helped you on your journey to getting to where you are now? So I don't think there were like super aha moments in the sense that influenced me of what I was choosing. I was pretty, yeah, oblivious and ignorant and where I was going. I didn't really know sort of what to do. I only knew that I wanted to do something with maths and physics because they were my favorite subjects in school. And I did not want to become a teacher. I'm not saying that, you know, I, again, have these respect for teachers, but it's just not. And I love actually outreach. I love talking about my science. I love explaining things. I just didn't want to do that every day in my life, basically. Um, so I knew I didn't want to become a teacher. I actually went to a career uh, consultation and I was like, I like maths and physics. And he was like, and I don't want to become a teacher. And the guy was like, oh, why don't you become a teacher? I was like, this is not helping. <laughs> You're meant to be telling me what I uh, should do. And then he gave me a little booklet. And then I discovered, and this is like, I can't even, when I now think back, how, how ignorant I was at the age of 18, I discovered that there is a discipline called engineering where you actually apply maths and physics. And I was like, ah, this sounds like, yeah, that, that's, that's pretty cool. And I, I liked the electricity part with my physics class. So like the whole, you know, like current and voltage and resistors and stuff like that. So I just signed up for electrical engineering. And in hindsight, I think what helped me in my personal development, and this is, again, very personal to my situation and my character and does not help every person, but I actually went to girls' grammar school. And I think I would not have developed or excelled so much in maths and physics if I had a co-ed. If I had been with boys who were usually very strong in that category and I would have probably been like, this is like the ages of like, 13, 14, you know, and you maybe even have a crush on someone in a in the classroom, I would not have had the courage to work in the classroom openly and, and contribute, I think. I don't know because I haven't been in that situation because I was only with girls and I, I felt quite, you know, safe in the class. And it was the opposite. I was the bright one and there were no boys competing with me, only girls. And that was sort of different because it was a girls communicate more in a network rather than having a strong sort of single competition necessarily. So in hindsight, those circumstances, I think, helped me a lot. But there was no single sort of event, I think. There was no – the teacher was, like, always encouraging me, the physics teacher, of, like, yeah, this is some – you know, like, they didn't say you should pursue a career, but he was, like, yeah, you're doing like, you know, you're you're really good at this. But yeah, he didn't really say go and study. You should become this scientist or something like that. And also didn't introduce you to the idea of engineering. No. He found that from a booklet. <laughs> maybe maybe he was too experienced with like just girls' grammar school, so <laughs> he didn't have the, uh, you know, he didn't set his expectations too high, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> Oh, well, you found your way anyhow. But I think that's a really interesting reflection. Uh, We do tend to focus on the moments because we remember individual moments, whereas like it is the ecosystem or the environment that we're in 
which longer term shapes our thinking and all that sort of stuff. So no, I think that's a really interesting insight. What is your favorite part of your job? What's the highlight that helps get you out of bed, even during a pandemic and keep investigating the space mess? So I think they're quite opposite things. There's two things that I really like. One thing that I get to do not very often, which is actually the actual lab part, like standing in the lab and building things together, actually sort of building something and then operating it. That's really great. But it takes a lot of effort and so much time to get to that point, unfortunately. And the other part is actually the exact opposite. So I really kind of like when people, like particularly when I say, to people, you know, I work doing research in space debris and like as soon as you call, like say the word space, people are like, wow, tell me more. <laughs> and sort of it's, it's really nice that why this is obviously my everyday job, it seems to inspire people and they like, they feel that it's something so special and, you know, important and privileged and great thing to do. Whereas I sometimes think that, yes, you have to obviously in order to get to the place where I am, yeah, you have to be like the crazy people always say, oh, you're so smart, you're so smart. But I mean, I literally like if I have to read some legal document, I literally fall asleep within the first page. Not because it's, ne- well, I find it boring as such, but only because I don't understand it. You know, I have the, the greatest appreciation for lawyers. And I was like, I have no idea what they're doing. And I would never be able to do this because my brain is just not wired that way. So for me, it's not, I'm not super bright. I, I just, my talent is just this part, but it, it's really inspiring to see how I can inspire people by just talking about what I actually do. That is a lovely, two very different things, but just by working in space, you're inspiring people. That's kind of cool. And I don't even work in space. <laughs> Shh. <laughs> You're going to help tidy up space, and that's even more important. (laughs) Do you have any advice that you would give to a younger person who's considering a career in space debris or optics? So in generally, like in Australia, the good news is that uh, the government has committed to, you know, expanding the space industry. That doesn't mean necessarily space debris. It also means development of rockets and spacecraft and launch sites and everything that is sort of, you know, entailed to that. So there will be heaps of career opportunities in the next 10 years to come. That's a good, a good part. And the even better part is, in my view, you don't necessarily, if you want to work in a career in space, you don't have to try too hard to get into a space degree. So, you know, there's universities that offer space degrees like in engineering or in, uh, in physical sciences, like with a, with a focus on a major in space engineering, mainly engineering. But I think as, as long as you do engineering and you identify what you like in engineering, there's always a component, no matter what subject you choose, that will be employed as part of spacecraft design like there's there's always technology that a spacecraft needs it doesn't matter what you specialize in you'll always find a way into the space industry and even if you study medicine for example you can still become a researcher in space medicine or something like that like it's it's space is so versatile because you all the applications for space as well if 
if you want to do research in climate change, there's heaps of, I think, I don't know, I don't want to get the numbers wrong, but, you know, so much data for climate change comes out of space and everything really. No matter what you actually want to study, you can always find application of where the data comes from is 100% always ending up coming from a satellite somewhere. So you'll always find a way to your space career if space is, is the career that you want to be in. You don't have to study rocket engines for three years if you want to get into space. You don't actually have to be a rocket scientist. That's right. But studying something in engineering is always helpful if you like the technology aspect of it. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm sure there's like probably jobs in psychology or something as well, like understanding how people exactly. think about space. Or, yeah. I think it's probably important to highlight the extent to which this is currently a growth industry in Australia. There's a lot happening. That's right. Are there any myths about the work that you do, really anything that you'd like to take this opportunity to bust, do a bit of myth busting? Well, I don't want to turn people off from a career in space. <laughs> After I've just freaked it, but... <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess what I just said earlier that, you know, you work on a job for three years, like particularly in, whether you, you design an instrument that's ground-based on a ground-based telescope or you, you do a spacecraft design, you usually have for the proper spacecraft, it takes a couple of years to bring it to space. And you just have to be aware of that, that it just takes a little bit of time. It's not like quickly building something with Lego and it works and we can make a product sort of like the product development is quite a cumbersome and time consuming process. I think that's something that people like you hear in the news, oh, another rocket goes up and, but the development that, you know, it has taken to actually come to this point is quite, quite a lot, a lot of effort. So possibly how it's represented in the media of just this, I guess it's really represented as a flash where this one thing happens and boom, the rocket goes up and the satellite's there and it was amazing. Done. So when you, when you see, you know, in NASA, when, when you see like when the, the satellite is launching and, and like the people are like dancing around and stuff, they're dancing around because the launch was successful, but because it means that their work over the last five to 10 years was actually meaningful because their work didn't blow up because the rocket launch failed. So, like, you can see, like, in the people's faces, the relief and, you know, of all the hard work and effort that it took to get to that point. But getting the actual data, that was always the goal, of course, but getting to that point, there's so much risk involved. Like, so many components can fail and have before, you know, like, if you actually look at the sort of history of space missions, like how, how many rockets have actually blown up while going into space. It will be easy soon for for tourism purposes to go into space. It's going to be a commercial venture. But the way to get there, of course, is a lot of research and money has to go in it. But still, the whole deep space and like space missions, they're still hard because everything is robotic and remote and everything just has to work. And that's something that's not displayed uh, in the media very much. Yeah. And just at the same that celebration of like five years worth of work going up, you can just imagine how crushing it is when things fail on the launch pad and yeah, all sorts of things can go wrong and you just really need one critical thing to go wrong and five years of your life, boom. So I guess what's the myth we're busting here? A, that it's easy and B, that it's fast. 
That's right. Yeah. It's neither, but it's rewarding. That's right. Is there anything else we haven't touched upon that you'd like to share? Yeah, I think, I mean, I guess we've said it again that like why I'm so passionate about this job is as well because I care for the environment and it's not only our immediate environment, it's also our sort of external environment that is quite fragile. And what's worse is that like people don't realize how much we depend on it. In order for us to to function and live, we need the oceans and we need the whole ecosystem to work and we need we need water and air to breathe, uh, water drink, air to breathe. So that's, of course, more important as such. You know, I agree. Because if the space environment is polluted, it's not going to have a direct effect really on our ability to live, but it will have a dire effect on our civilization because if we don't have any functioning assets in space, we won't be able to call people in other countries. We won't be able to have a stable internet. We won't be able to do internet banking because timing stamps are all linked to to satellite data. Uh, we won't be able to use our smartphone to navigate to places that we haven't been or have been for that matter and just never remember the way because we don't have to because we have our Google Maps. You know, we won't be able to do track the delivery guy and all this information flow that you have is all based on assets in space and all the research that's done climate change everything like about catastrophic management like flood management fire management all that stuff is all coming from space so it's not only the you know where do we come from what's the universe like question which is of course a huge question in its own that gets answered by a lot of things with data from space, but it's mainly our entire livelihood of how we love to live that is completely dependent on assets in space at the moment. And that's quite fragile, and that's why I'm here. <laughs> We're not going <laughs> to lose it. And, of course, I can't solve it by myself, so I need help. I'm sorry, would you like more people to come and join you? <laughs> yeah, that's good. But yeah, it's, it's a huge endeavor. And as I said before, there is no uh, one solution fits all. So we have to come up with a lot of solutions to solve this problem. Yeah. So we're going to need a lot of people working just with any large, complex problem, international problem, three-dimensional problem. Like we need a whole lot of people with a lot of different skills approaching, solving it from different angles, and then hopefully together people will stumble into something and we can keep our internet banking because I'd quite like that. That's right. <laughs> cool. Well, that's a slightly spine-chilling end. So to, to flick it back to the positive, is there anyone you'd like to give a virtual high five to? Anyone who you think is doing an awesome job and just deserves all the virtual COVID-safe high fives? Yeah, I mean, maybe I, I ride on the wagon high-fiving to all the women out there, particularly with children, the time I think is particularly challenging looking after children and doing work and stuff. I found that quite challenging. And I was in the fortunate situation that I still had some daycare to fall back to. So that was really good. But yeah, I think I've been in, a, in my mother role for three years. I appreciate of how challenging working life can be. 
And, you know, three years earlier, I thought, oh, this is like stressful. And now I know what, what stressful really is <laughs> like. So high five to all the, all the carers out there. Let's put it there. Like we always say women have such a hard time, but I mean, there's a lot of men. High fives to all the men that take a big chunk so that all their partners can work as well, whatever gender they are. If you share the load, that's awesome. Thank you. And I think especially when we're doing important jobs, like whether it's medical emergency care, whether it's like understanding global climate, protecting the skies from being full of astronaut pay, any of these things, we need other people supporting so that we can do the important job of raising the next generation and saving the planet and space at the same time. So high fives to everybody. That's right. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Doris. This has been absolutely fascinating. I'm now slightly terrified, but also hopeful that things are going to get better. So, you know, it's a bit of an emotional roller coaster. It's great. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. I just have to, you know, uh, paint Doomsday so that people listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> and so you get grants. That's right. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for tuning in. If you like this episode, please pass it on to someone else who you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to support Avid Resets this year, that would be amazing. Uh, you can buy us a coffee. Head to avidresearch.com.au and there'll be a link. Buy me a coffee and you can support us with a one-off little coffee payment. Thanks so much for listening. You're a legend. Bye.